chapter 7 and 8 tonight. So if you need a Bible, just raise your hand and we'll get a Bible right to you so you can follow along with us. Nehemiah chapter 7 and 8. As you're turning there, I don't know about you, but I am so thankful that this election is over. That we're done with this thing. You know, if, if you were praying about this election, whether your candidate won or not, now I think is the time for us as a church, as a nation, to turn to God in humility and repentance and really pray for revival in America. That's really what we long for. That's what we want, you know. It doesn't matter who our, our president is if the Lord's not guiding us and the Lord's not, not leading us. I think we need to be praying for Mike Pence. Uh, you know, he's a man that we know is a born-again Christian. He can have a huge impact on the president-elect Donald Trump. And so, uh, you know, I think with all this over now, I mean, we were praying before the election. Now we need to pray even more right now and, and pray that our country is turned around and pray for revival again, once again, in America. And I think that's what we're going to look at a little bit this morning as uh, uh, this morning. <laughs> I was up late last night watching the election, so it feels like morning to me now. But so I look about revival in, in uh, Nehemiah chapter 7, but let, before we do, let's, let's join in a word of prayer. Father, we thank you for this night tonight. Lord, we thank you, Lord, for the work that you're doing in our country. And I pray, Lord, for Christians, for believers, Lord, that we would not stop uh, in our prayer life. Lord, as we have prayed for this election, Lord, that we would pray for revival in America. We would pray for our president-elect, Lord, that he would truly come to know you as his Lord and as his Savior. Lord, we pray for wisdom for Governor Mike Pence, Lord, that you would use him to to reach uh, uh, President-elect Trump, Lord. And we pray that you would uh, just make changes in our country back to... Uh, Lord, godly principles, Lord, and godly men and women would, would be raised up in the cabinet and in the, in, in the, uh, uh, just in the administration, Lord, that would bring back godly principles to our nation. Lord, thank you for the work that you're doing. Now we pray, Lord, as we look to Nehemiah chapter 7 and chapter 8, Lord, that you'd bless our time together, Lord, give us understanding, give us attentive ears to what you have to say to our hearts tonight. We just commit this time to you now. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Chapter 7 really serves as a pivot point in the book of Nehemiah. Chapters 1 through 6 describe the restoration of the wall into Jerusalem. You know, Nehemiah was a man of prayer. He was a man of perseverance. And, and, and really we see that in the walls being built. Then chapters 8 through 13 is about the restoration of the people of Judah. So chapter 7 is the midway point. Now, last time we saw in chapter 6, verse 15, that the wall was finished on the 25th day of Elul in 52 days. I mean, what an accomplishment. You know, the, the final brick was laid, the final door was hung, you know, in, in, in the midst of one attack after another. I mean, he was being attacked from every angle, but continued steadfast in the work that God had called him to, to do. And the result, look at verse 16 of chapter 6. And it happened when all our enemies heard of it, and all the nations around us saw these things, that they were very disheartened in their own eyes, for they perceived that the, this work was done by our God. I like that. God did the work. The enemies attacked and attacked and attacked, and when it was done, they're going, man, there's only one way, there's only one reason for all this. God did the work. It's God, God did it. I mean, that had to be the most thrilling experience in the world, to watch God come to the rescue when you've been helpless, when you've been facing continuous assaults by the enemy, in spite of all that name-calling, the, the wall was built. 
See, when the enemy blasts, God builds and God is glorified. Why is that so important today? Because it's impossible to do the will of God, to walk by faith and to build that wall of faith on our own lives without facing attacks. We're going to face attacks. And so this, is a, this should be an encouragement to us as we see the results with Nehemiah to stand firm. Remember that, that God is in control. As we look to him, we can trust in his sovereignty. We don't trust in some political leader or some new president-elect. You know, we, we trust in the sovereignty of God. And in the end, God is going to do the work that he chooses to do. Well, now we come to verse 1 of chapter 7. Nehemiah says, Then it was when the wall was built and I had hung the door. Stop there for a moment. See, there's something missing. Yes, the physical place is built, but the spiritual place is still lying in ruins. They needed a revival. And so too for us, it's great to have a physical place to gather, but it's more important that our hearts are always filled with the presence of God, with the love of God, the character of Christ, with the Word of God. I mean, this is what revival means in its truest sense of the Word. When God's Word is in God's people, God is glorified and revival happens. So Nehemiah has finished this great task. He's built the wall in the midst of overwhelming odds. He gives authority to God. But Nehemiah does not let the accomplishments of his task keep him from finishing even further business. He didn't go, okay, that's it. I'm done. I did the wall. I'm going back to King Artaxerxes. I can be the cupbearer, you know, drink some wine and, and eat, taste his great foods and I'm good to go. No, he knew there was still more work to do. The task of revival in the heart of the people. Yeah, again, the wall was done, but the work on the hearts had just begun. Now, we know that Nehemiah's primary purpose was to, to rebuild the wall uh, you know, for safety, for security of God's people there in Jerusalem, because Jerusalem is a place where uh, God put his name, where he wanted a house to be built to worship him. So the primary motive in rebuilding Jerusalem was the worship and praise of God. But getting the walls built or building built or the remodeling done, it's only the shell of what God truly wants to do in and through our lives. I've shared this many times before, especially when we were going through the book of Jonah. God has to do that work in us before he can do that work through us. And that's what God wanted to do here with these people. And that's why before we see revival happening in chapter 8, we see Nehemiah preparing the people in chapter 7. See, Nehemiah is, is reestablishing the leadership. He's, he might say he's setting up his cabinet, so to speak. You know, uh, he, in our case, it would be he's bringing in the ministry leaders in the church, elders, leaders, Sunday school teachers, ushers, worship leaders. He's getting them all gathered around to, to begin this work that needs to be done in their hearts. Now look again at verse 1 of chapter 7. Then it was when the wall was built and I had hung the doors, when the gatekeepers, the singers, and the Levites had been appointed, that I gave the charge of Jerusalem to my brother Hanani and Hananiah, the leader of the citadel, for he was a faithful man and feared God more than many. And I said to them, Do not let the gates of Jerusalem be open until the sun is hot, and while they stand guard, let them shut and bar the doors, and appoint guards from among the inhabitants of Jerusalem, one at his watch station and another in front of his own house. So one of Nehemiah's first official act was to appoint two assistants, his brother Hanani and Hananiah. Now, the citadel that Hananiah was the leader to, is, it was really, it's a fortress area there in the temple. Some call it the palace, but, but that's what a citadel was. And so here Nehemiah says their job would be that of rulers of the districts of the city. Now, why was Nehemiah convinced that these two men would be good leaders? Why did he choose these guys? He said, well, because one of them was his brother. You know, he's getting the brother and the family in the business. No, they had two wonderful qualities. Look again at verse 2. It says, number one, they were faithful men. 
they were faithful to God. And number two, they feared God more than many. They, they were faithful men and they feared God. In other words, they were dependable. It's been said the greatest ability is dependability. And I certainly agree. The greatest help to me in ministry is to those that are in leadership, that, that are dependable. Those where, what I don't have to be concerned about, but this getting done or that getting done, I can come in here and, and I can trust, man, things are going to be set up, things are going to get done. They'll take care of it. That's a blessing to anyone in leadership or even in a secular you know, work realm. See, if we truly fear the Lord, we're going to be faithful to do the work that God has called us to do. But here's the problem. When leaders fear people instead of fearing God, then they end up getting trapped and, and that leads to failure. Proverbs 29, 25, For the fear of man brings a snare, but whoever trusts in the Lord shall be safe. So again, Nehemiah, he's reestablishing the leadership. He appoints his brothers a civil leader over Jerusalem, and Hananiah is appointed the military leader. You might say you got the mayor and the chief of police. Okay, that's set. Then in verse 3, he says, Do not the gates of Jerusalem be open until the sun is hot, and while they stand guard. See, a tremendous victory had been won. The walls were rebuilt, but the, the walls alone were not bring protection to them. Diligent watchmen still needed to be appointed and the walls still needed to be guarded. The gates then were open to be opened late and closed early. It was, it was time for high security. Red alert, you know, or yellow alert, caution. And so Nehemiah appointed these guards, one at his watch station and another in front of his own house. And look at that and that thinks, you know, it's the same, I think the same thing is true for us. You know, we must be diligent to keep the enemy out, you know, one here at our church and one in our own homes. You know, we, 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 we have that protection up. We, we safeguard our church and safeguard our homes. That is, we mustn't allow the enemy of our souls, the devil, to get a foothold in our lives and in our homes and lead us down paths of disobedience. Nehemiah's message in part was, hey, we're still in danger. We're still at war. We need to be sober. We need to be vigilant. Your enemy is like a, a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. And that's never going to change, folks, until the Lord takes us home. I, mean, I wish, you know, uh, but, but there, until we get to heaven, there, there, that's when we'll truly have peace. You see, if you're doing anything for God, there's going to be a battle. Some attempt to ensnare you, to put you down, to stop what you're doing. But our tendency to think is, oh, if I could just get through this. Oh, if we just get to that, oh, then, oh, then uh, next week is going to be good. I just got, I got this battle, and this is going to, but man, I'm just going to be gone. You know what? I hate to disappoint you, but it's not going to happen. You know, uh, life is going to be that way until we're there with the Lord. Now, Nehemiah understood this, so he's preparing the people for that. Look at verse 4. Now, the city was large and spacious, but the people in it were few, and the houses were not rebuilt. So there's plenty of room. But there's no people. <laughs> the city was undercrowded. They needed more people for the work that needed to be done. You know, some things never change. <laughs> there's always a need in every church. You know, every church I've ever been to, there's always been a need in children's ministry. I, I don't know. You could be in a church of 5,000 people and, oh, we need some Sunday school teachers today. Or a church of 20 people. Oh, we need Sunday school workers today. You know, children's ministry always seems to have a need. I'm thankful for those that, that have have stepped up to minister to the kids and for those who have done that. But, but there's a need here. So, in verse 5 we read for Nehemiah, that then, then my God put it into my heart to gather the nobles, the rulers, and the people that they might be registered by genealogy. And I found a register of the genealogy of those who had come up in the first return 
and found written in it. These are the people of the province who came back from the captivity of those who had been carried away, whom Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, had carried away, and who returned to Jerusalem and Judah, everyone to his city. So here we see that the Lord laid on Nehemiah's heart to, to take a census of the people. And in verses 7 through all the way through 65, it's a huge list of names that I am not even going to try. Not even going to try to pronounce. I, I, you know, if you want to do it on your own, that's great. I encourage you. You'll be better at it than I am. I would butcher them. But let me say this. Their names are there for a reason. Nehemiah just didn't need to know the number of the people. He needed to know the people, to know them, to to know the people around him, their gifts, their abilities, what God had called these people to do. So he's identifying the people of God. Because before renewal and revival can take place in the church, the people of God need to be recognized. They need to be identified. And as a part of the body of Christ, we all have responsibilities, gifts that God has given to us that we need to know and we need to use for the glory of God. And so here we have Nehemiah mentioning the leaders that he had, and he's bringing these people together. Look at verse 6 and 7 again. He says, These are the people of the province who came back from the captivity of those who had been carried away from Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, had carried away, and who returned to Jerusalem and Judah, everyone to his city. Verse 7, Those who came with Jubal was Jeshua and the rest of these guys, and then the number of the men of the people of Israel. And, and so, so here we have a list of names that you'll find is almost identical to Ezra chapter 2. Why the copy? Certainly it's an introduction to the second half of the book of Nehemiah. But it's more than that. I think it is to answer the question, who is a true Jew? What what gifts do they have? What are their callings? See, there's 42,360 people are mentioned in both lists. That's a lot of people. The list contains original leaders in verses 6 and 7. Then you have a list of laymen in verses 8 all the way down to verse 38. Then in verse 39 through 42 are the list of the priests. These are the descendants of Aaron, Moses' brother. They're responsible for the temple worship, for the sacrifices, for the feast. Nehemiah needed to know that. He needed to know who he had and what their gifts were. Verse 43, the Levites, the descendants of Levi who served in rotation assisting the priests who were the descendants from Aaron. Nehemiah needed to know that in order to serve the Lord properly. Verse 44, we have the singers. Okay, We have the worship team. <laughs> they were numbered among the Levites. They, they were to assist in worship. In verse 45, we have the gatekeepers. Okay, There are ushers. You need to know the ushers. Verse 45, 46 through 56, the temple servants. That would be the children's ministry. I just saw that in there. Okay, Then in verse 57 through 60, the descendants of the servants of Solomon. Then finally, in verses 61 through 65, we have a Hind 57 group. The rest of the church, you might say. Now, these are the leftovers. Those whose ancestry was questionable. Look at verse 64. We read that these guys sought their listing among those who were registered by genealogy, but it was not found. Therefore, they were excluded from the priest as defiled. So, this Heinz 57 group, they needed to be identified. Why? Because, number one, some could be enemies in the camp. They wanted to make sure, first of all, that they weren't enemies. But then secondly, they wanted to make sure they were all on the same page when it comes to serving the Lord in ministry. You see, some were called to be priests. Some were called to worship leaders. Some, some were called to be watchmen. They wanted everyone to be in the right place serving the Lord. In the same way when it comes to ministry. In ministry. Now, we certainly don't want 
people who are not believers in Jesus Christ to be serving in children's ministry. We certainly don't want believers, you know, non-believers to be leading up here in worship. They couldn't lead in worship because they can't truly worship the Lord. And so he's making sure we have the people in the right place. And, and, and so when it comes to appointing leaders in the church, we need to make especially sure when it comes to elders, worship leaders, Bible study group leaders, that number one, obviously they're born again. But number two, that they're on the same page in the direction of ministry. Here at Calvary Chapel, we have a direction of ministry and in ministry. That is, we hold certain things distinctive that make us a Calvary Chapel, and we expect those in leadership, those in ministry, to hold those two as well. Things like the Moses style of, of church uh, government, church leadership, you know, the expository teaching of God's Word, the, the view of our Lord's soon return, and, 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 and our emphasis on preaching about the rapture of the church. Those are things that, that you recognize, hey, this is the Calvary Chapel, this is what we do in Calvary Chapel Springfield. We have our, our view of, of the male leadership in the church and the New Testament teaching of prohibiting women teaching men. The need of being baptized in the Holy Spirit and the gifts being for today. These are core values that we hold as Calvary Chapel distinctive. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 1.10, Now I plead with you, brethren, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you all speak the same thing and that there be no divisions among you, but that you may be perfectly joined together in the same mind and the same judgment. And so, in a church, in, in, in a ministry, what Nehemiah was wanting to do here, hey, we all need to be on the same page here. We need to be going in the right direction. And so he's appointing leadership, people with the same mind, going in the same direction. In the same way, all kinds of people are necessary for the worship here. Again, I've said this already, Sunday morning, Wednesday night, everybody, we need everybody. And as we grow as a fellowship, we need to make sure, to the best of our ability, that we're all on the same page. We're all going in the same direction. And so here was this group that couldn't prove that they were in the genealogy of the priesthood. So in order to fix this, look at verse 65. And the governor said to them that they should not eat of the most holy things till the priest could consult with the Urim and the Thummim. So Nehemiah says, hold on. Before we do anything with you guys, I want the priest to consult with the Urim and the Thummim to determine if they were fit for service. Now what is the Urim and the Thummim? Just... Funny names that sound like you have a lisp when you say it. Okay, what's the Urman and the Thuman? It was their way of discovering the will of God at that time. Exodus chapter 28, Leviticus 8, we're told of the breastplate of the high priest. On this breastplate was 12 beautiful stones representing each of the 12 tribes of Israel. There was also this device or object called the Urim and the Thuman. Now we think that they were two more beautiful gemstones because their names mean lights and perfections. And we're not sure how they operated. No one's exactly sure. I don't know if they would actually light up with the yes and one with the no, kind of like the old-fashioned eight ball. Remember those things as a kid? Will I become rich? Not likely. <laughs> Will I get married? Not likely. Am I handsome? Not likely. I always got not likely whenever I shook the thing like that. Now, certainly we don't need that today. Why? Because we have the Word of God and we have the Holy Spirit to lead us and to guide us. But for them, they, they had the Word of God, but there were just some things that were just difficult to know. So God used this, his means of communication with them, and they sought the Lord through this means in order to see if these men were qualified in duty in that ministry. And again, today we pray over people, and we seek the Lord and for his word for direction. This is the way they did it. We do it differently. Well, in the remaining verses of chapter 7, it's a list of all the resources that they had and how people gave to the ministry, to the work of the Lord, and that's just as important. You know, to give to the ministry and give to the work of the Lord. If, you, if you're unable to serve in the ministry, you can serve through, through your giving to the ministry. Jump down to verse 70 to 72. 
We read, And some of the heads of the fathers' house gave to the work. The governor gave to the treasury 1,000 gold drachmas. A drachma was a, a gold coin. 50 basins, 530 priestly garments. Some of the heads of the fathers' houses gave to the treasury of the work 20,000 gold drachmas and 2,200 silver minas. And that which the rest of the people gave was 20,000 gold drachmas, 2,000 silver minas, and 67 priestly garments. So the priests, the Levites, the gatekeepers, the singers, some of the people, the Nethanim, they were temple workers or servants. And all Israel dwelt in their cities. When the seventh month came, the children of Israel were in their cities. Everybody's in place. Everybody gave. Everything's there. The wall's been built. The money's been saved up. The material building was now over. Now. Now it's time for the work spiritually in the people. They needed a revival. All of the makings for revival was at hand except one key ingredient. I mean, they're all there. They're all excited. Everything's there, but something was missing. What was missing? The Word of God. See, in every genuine revival in history, two major thrusts have always appeared. First, there's always been a proclamation of the Bible, God's Word, and secondly, there's always been the response to the proclamation, the reaction of the people to God's Word. Well, now look at verses 1 and 2 of chapter 8. Now all the people gathered together as one man in the open square that was in the front of the water gate, and they told Ezra, the scribe, to bring the book of the law of Moses, which the Lord commanded Israel. So Ezra the priest brought the law before the assembly of men and women, and all who could hear with understanding on the first day of the seventh month. And this is a Bible teacher's dream come true. All the people said, hey, bring us the Bible, bring us the Word of God and, and, and teach it to us. <laughs> awesome. Yeah, you bet. And so they bring the book of the law of Moses. You know that a church is on the edge of revival when the congregation insists on the teaching of the Word of God. The people, they had an appetite for the Word. They're asking Ezra to bring the book and preach it. I, I love it because if we want true revival to take place, then we need to have an appetite for the Word of God. Appetite, appetite for the Word of God. We need to have a desire for understanding of God's Word, a desire to apply it in our life. Not experiential Christianity, but factual Christianity. As I said already, this is what renewal and revival means in the truest sense of the Word. We need God's Word and God's people to fulfill God's will. Chuck Swindoll writes, Revival occurs as God ignites the fire of His Word and mobilizes His people to go and win the lost. That's revival. Look at verse 3. Then he read it in the open square that was in front of the water gate from morning until midday before the men and women and those who could understand and the ears of the people were attentive to the book of the law. So the book that Ezra brought was the book of the law. That was probably, you know, the, the, the entire scroll of the Torah. The first five books of Moses uh, the, the very foundation of Jewish religion, of civil law. And it says there, and the ears of the people were attentive to the book of the law. I like that. They were attentive. You know, I always pray that. I pray it on Sunday morning. Oh, Lord, make us attentive to your word. As, as your word is being taught, uh, you know, help us to stay attentive to your word. Look at verse 4. So Ezra the scribe stood on the platform of wood which they had made for the purpose, and beside him at his right hand stood... All of these guys, and then uh, some other guys stood next to him. Then verse 5, And Ezra opened the book on the side of all the people, for he was standing above all the people. And when he opened it, all the people stood up. And Ezra blessed the Lord, the great God. Then all the people answered, Amen, Amen, while lifting up their hands. Oh, I love that. And they bowed their heads and worshipped the Lord with their faces to the ground. Also, Joshua, Bani, Sherebiah, Jamin, a bunch of these guys, 
uh, and the Levites helped the people to understand the law, and the people stood in their place. I love it. It says, as the word of God was being taught, was being read, they stood up and they raised their hands. Well, you know, why would they do that? Just a sign of respect. I mean, they had respect for the word of God. They have reverence for the word of God. And then we read that, that Ezra blessed the Lord, the great God. See, Ezra's about to read the word of God. His entire focus, his entire heart is on, on God, the God of heaven. You know, he's focused. He's prepared. The people are prepared. You know, they're not thinking, oh, I wonder if I left the stove on. It wasn't, well, you know, I've got to get up early the next day. No, no. Man, when it came to, the, to God's word, their focus was on the Lord. As the blessed the Lord, the great God. And I like that. You see, it's not our great faith that changes the world. It's our great faith in a great God that causes change. To bless God here uh, means to speak well of the Lord, to praise Him, to tell Him in, uh, how great He is and how marvelous the Lord is of heaven. Because when we focus on God and not on ourselves, revival becomes a possibility. Revival takes place when a person, a family, a church, a community, a nation decides to focus on the Lord and not on themselves. Respect and, and reverence for the person of God, the Word of God, leads to response from the people of God. Again, I love in verse 6, as they're hearing the word being taught, they're going, Amen, Amen, and their hands are up. Now, Amen is not just something we say, you know, at the end of a prayer, like the end, you know. Lord, thank you for this day, the end. Okay, let's go on. No. Amen doesn't mean the end. It means so be it. It's a way to express agreement, to say to a group, hey, we all agree. Man, the word of God is being taught a lot by Ezra. They're, They're pronouncing agreement. I agree, I agree, so be it. The Nehemiah goes on in verse 6 by saying that the people all bowed their heads and worshiped the Lord with their faces to the ground. See, the next step, the Word of God, there's revival, they're praying, so be it. Then all of a sudden, the Word of God touches their heart. And now they're down on their face. They're down on their face in humility. Just, a, a, you know, that's really a sign of a broken and contrite heart. That's how revival happens. The Word of God touching the people of God who in turn humble themselves before a great mighty God and worship the Lord in humility. See, I think it's really hard for, for someone not to worship the Lord when you realize all that He's done for you. When you realize all that He's forgiven you of, all that He's done in your life, how could you not worship the Lord? You adore Him. You speak of His love and grace. You want to talk to Him instead of run from Him. Worship comes when people get right with God. See, people can't worship the Lord if, if they're not right with, you know, with other people. People cannot worship the Lord unless they're right with the Lord. It's impossible for us to, uh, you know, to, to sing of the forgiveness of God if you're holding unforgiveness in your heart towards someone else. You can't truly worship the Lord if you're harboring unforgiveness in your heart towards, towards someone. But Jesus put it this way in Matthew 5.23, If you bring your gift to the altar and there remember that your brother or sister a brother has something against you. Leave your gift there before the altar and go your way. First be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. You see, that's when true worship comes in. We're no longer separated from God by some sin in our life. True worship comes in when we're right with God. We've humbled ourselves before the Lord and we're right with each other. That's when revival takes place. Look at verse 8. So they read distinctly from the book in the law of God and they gave the sense and helped them to understand the reading. Isn't that great? I mean, 
I love that. That's what we do. That's what we're all about. Every Wednesday, every Sunday morning, the people requested the Word of God. The Word of God was read. There was, uh, they gave them a sense. They helped them to understand it. And, and, and in the reading, and, and the response was, Amen, Amen. But, but I like it says that they read distinctly from the book. That word distinctly means to separate. Uh, the Word of God distinctly, separately, clearly is what they read. You, you can go even a step further, line upon line, precept upon precept. Our time, it's verse by verse. They separated each passage to get a clear understanding of what is being said to give the meaning of the sense of the passage. And that's really how I came to know the Lord. And maybe, maybe you've had a similar testimony. Listening to Pastor Chuck on the radio teach verse by verse, line upon line. And we go, man, I've never heard that before. And hearing God's Word taught distinctly, separately, and clearly with a view towards understanding not His words, but God's words. I tell you, that's what a sermon should do. That's what teaching should do. You know, you tell you what the passage says, it's observation. If you tell you what the passage means, interpretation, and then what to do, that's application. See, I want the Bible teacher to tell me what the Bible says, not just what you think it says, but what it says. Proclaim the Word, interpret the Word, explain the Word. Now, sometimes the Bible needs no explanation, but other times we need to explain what the Bible means. That is the meaning of the expression they gave the sense in verse 8. Now look at verse 9. And Nehemiah, who was the governor, Ezra the priest and the scribe, and the Levites who taught the people, said to all the people, This day is holy to the Lord your God. Do not mourn nor weep, for all the people wept when they heard the words of the law. That shouldn't be a surprise to us. I mean, the, the, the people wept when they heard the words of the law, heard the words of the law because the law shows us our sin. The law shows us our sin. The law was given to show us how far we are from what we could and should be in order to drive us to the Lord and to His grace. The people were weeping because the Word of God convicted their hearts. Could it be that the church today, there's no weeping going on because the Word of God is, is not being taught? I mean, certainly it could be the case. You know, man's philosophies, they don't convict a, a person's heart. They may condemn a person, but not convict a person. But the Word of God convicts a person's heart, drawing them towards God, not away from God. So they're weeping over the sin, but here Nehemiah says, it's not time to mourn, it's not time to weep, it's time to, time to come together and worship the Lord. He says, this day is holy to the Lord. Then look at verse 10. Then he said, go your way, eat the fat, drink the sweet, send portions to those for whom nothing is prepared. For this day is holy to our Lord. Do not serve for the joy of the Lord is your strength. And wouldn't you love to hear that? Man, eat the fat, man. And drink the sweet, man. Get, get, man, party time. You know, we're, 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 the, the joy of the Lord is your strength. See, the call was for them to change their countenance. Instead of being sorrowful, be joyful. A new day. God's going to do new things in your life. That's what he was saying. Look at verse 11. So the Levites quieted all the people, saying, Be still, for the day is holy. Do not be grieved. And all the people went their way to eat and drink, to send portions and rejoice greatly, because they understood the words that were declared to them. When people hear the word of God, when they're taught the word of God, when they apply the Word of God to their lives, they find great joy and great strength. And I want to say this, though there's a place to bring up social issues in the church, and there are times where political things should be brought up, the focus of the church is not social, it's not political, it's not all of that. The focus must always be the Word of God. 
goes back to just simply teaching the Word of God simply. I believe if the Bible is taught in the way that people can understand and apply it, then they can make up their minds for themselves on the social and political issues based upon what they've been taught through the Word of God. Peter tells us in 2 Peter 1.3 that God through His divine powers has given us all things that we need through, uh, to, to, to pertain to life and godliness to the knowledge of Him who called us by glory and virtue. But it all comes back down to the Word of God being taught and applied to our lives. And that's what we see happen next. As the Word of God is being taught, they come across a portion of Scripture that deals with what the Feast of the Tabernacles is all about, the booth, and they realize they need to do something about it. Let's finish up the chapter. Look at verse 13. And on the second day, the heads of the fathers, houses of all the people, with the priests and the Levites, were gathered to Ezra the scribe in order to understand the words of the law. And they found written in the law, which the Lord had commanded by Moses, that the children of Israel should dwell in booths during the feast of the seventh month. And that they should announce and proclaim in all the cities in Jerusalem, saying, Go out to the mountain and bring olive branches, branches of oil trees, myrtle branches, palm branches, and branches of leafy trees, to make booths as it is written. Then the people went out and brought them and made themselves booths, each one on the roof of his house, or in the courtyards of the courts of the house of God, and in the open square of the water gate, and in the open square of the gate of Ephraim. So the reading through the Word of God, they must have come across Leviticus chapter 23, which speaks of the Feast of Tabernacles, the Feast of Booths. And what they would do during this time is they would uh, move into these loosely uh, thatched shelters for seven days. It was temporary shelters that, that just enough to stay there at night, allow the wind to pass through. Not very comfortable, but it was done in order for them to remember the days when they had those 40 years of wandering through the wilderness to the Promised Land. So it would remind them of the faithfulness of God, but in turn, would, they would you know, use it to teach their children's lessons of faith as they told them what God did to sustain the people. So we read, read in verse 17, So the whole assembly of those who returned from captivity made booths and sat under the booths. For since the days of Joshua, the son of Nun, until that day the children of Israel had not done so, and there was great, very great gladness. I love this. They, they see that the, what the Word of God required them to do they did it, and they weren't just a little happy. It was very great gladness. They were rejoicing in the Lord. And finally, verse 18, Also by day, and from the first day until the last day, he read from the book of the law, and they kept the feast seven days, and on the eighth day there was a sacred assembly according to the prescribed manner. So, for eight days the Feast of Tabernacles was kept from the 15th month uh, to the 22nd we go and i'm almost done so let's finish up here while we still have it um, this is the feast of the okay i'll just stand still we're almost done really but this is important I want to point. okay there all right where was i okay for the first seven days, the high priest, along with the other priests, would head down to the temple mount in this procession. The Pulsalem, as they traveled, the singers would be singing Isaiah 12:3. Therefore, with joy, you'll draw water from the wells of salvation. This is what was going on when Jesus was, was, was there. The religious leaders you know, added some religious activities to the feast. And so this is the, after the feast of Booth, when it was coming to an end, this is what would happen. And the singers would be singing, therefore, with joy, you draw water from the wells of salvation. And at that point, at the Pool of Siloam, they would draw some water out with these golden pitchers and they'd take it back to the temple area 
And as the crowd gathered around them, the high priest would pour out this water in the ground, signifying that God had provided water for the children of Israel as they watered for the 40 years there in the wilderness. And on the eighth day of their their procession, there was no procession, no pouring out of the water, signifying that God had indeed brought them into the land that provided water for them, that God was faithful in doing what he said. Now, it was at that point that Jesus stood up that we know in John chapter 7, and where he says, if anyone thirsts, let him come after me and drink. He who believes in me, as the scriptures have said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. The providing of the water, uh, those 40 years in the wilderness from the rock, was symbolic of Christ and what Christ was going to do. One was physical, providing of water, the other spiritual. Paul said this in 1 Corinthians 10, For they drank of that spiritual rock that followed them, and that rock was, was Christ. So Jesus was saying that, that your physical thirst has been met, and if you want your spiritual thirst quenched, come to me, and out of that life of living water, that not only satisfy you, but it will touch the life of others. And John tells us there that he was speaking of the Holy Spirit who would empower them for the work of the ministry. So I want to close with this, folks. This is what we need to recognize, that it's not by might, it's not by power, it's by my Spirit, says the Lord. Revival happened here in Nehemiah's time, not because Nehemiah was this great man of God, though he was, not because the people built the wall and resisted the enemy, though they did. Revival came as a result of God's Word. And through the Holy Spirit giving understanding to what God says, as a result of that, the people of God were obedient to the Word of God. But it's all through God's Spirit. And if we want to see God's revival poured out in our church, in our community, in in, in our country, it's got to come from the Spirit of God working in the people of God in obedience to the Word of God. Then we'll see true revival, true renewal, true worship, and true rejoicing. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this time tonight, Lord. And Lord, as we read here that these these men, these women, Lord, as they heard the word of God taught and they saw this practice of, of the, the Feast of Booths, Lord, that they want and they did what the word said and they practiced it and they did it, Lord. And we see that Jesus, that your son Jesus uh, did the same thing at the end, Lord, and showing to us that it's the spiritual that matters, Yes, you take care of our physical needs, Lord, but it's the spiritual thing that matters, Lord. And what matters is our hearts. And our hearts need to be right before you. And so, Lord, we thank you again for the work that you're doing in each one of our lives. I thank you for this church, Lord, and the work that you're doing here. And we are humbled before you, Lord God, that you would use us and that you would bless our lives. And we give you all the the honor and glory and praise for the work that you're doing. We recognize, Lord, that it's not by our might or by power, but by your Holy Spirit, Lord. And we pray for revival in our hearts, revival in our land. I pray for wisdom for our our new leadership in our country. But, Lord, we pray that there'd be a going back to your word in the churches, Lord. Those churches that have strayed away from your word, that they would return to your word and and find the truth and, and the glory that's in that. We thank you for this time, Lord. We give you all the glory, honor, and praise. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Let's all stand. We do